ahead and get started uh, today. Uh, we're going to start talking a little bit more about 1 Corinthians. And uh, I want to do a, a fast little uh, reminder of, of what we've been talking about. You recall that in, in 1 Corinthians, where's my clicker at? Um, that we have this experience where, where you going to find it? I just have to make sure I'm not carrying it in my pocket here. Uh, here, here. No, I set it up. It should be. Oh, you know what? Maybe I didn't get it out yet. Here it is. Yay! Thank you. <laughs> okay. Um, we talked about the fact that uh, in in Corinth we had this coming together of a lot of great cultures, and they were, and we had this mix of of uh, Roman culture mixing with Greek culture, mixing with Jewish culture, and they're coming together, but at the same time, there's no tradition of what a church should look like. They don't have anything to fall back on. And so they're creating this culture on the fly. And so it makes sense that the Jewish saints want to do what? Bring their Jewishness with them. And the Roman uh, folks want to bring their Romanness with them. Uh, and and you just have, we have a tendency to want to stay with this familiar and then just bring in a little bit of the gospel and mix that together in a comfortable little soup that makes sense to us. Okay. Well, the problem is, is that ethnically, uh, the Greeks weren't really fond of the Romans who had really beat up and burned Corinth to the ground in about 400 AD. Uh, and the Jews were always sure that anybody who was Greek or Roman were completely pagan and all going to Hades. Uh, and and the, the other cultures were a little worried about the Jews, the, the circumcised ones that are a little weird. And they won't want to eat with us, and they, and they eat their meat a certain way. It's just, so there was ethnic sensibilities to start with. Now we're going to bring them together and try and form a church that is supposed to function like one. And it was a rough experiment, and it didn't always work really, really well. And in fact, it really started. We're going to watch, especially when we get into 2 Corinthians, how it splintered and how it, the effect that it had on Paul. Um, but uh, as we get started then, I want to jump to how does Paul deal with the divisions? And like I mentioned, there are, uh, if, we, if we're going to take books like uh, 1 Corinthians, uh, Romans, and Hebrews, and maybe Ephesians, we just have these books written by Paul or Paul dictating to somebody that are so theological dense, that there's so much information that it was hard for me to put a PowerPoint around it. So our best way of doing this, I think, is going to be to kind of look directly uh, at the scriptures itself. So I want to, I want to start with uh, 1 Corinthians 12. Um, this is how he begins to deal with this. Uh, now, when, when we look at 1 Corinthians 12, uh, I think anybody who has taught very many classes over time, and we're going to talk about, oh, let's talk about spiritual gifts in the church. 
Anybody know right off the top of your head, there are three places in the scriptures that outline spiritual gifts, and they are where? Doctrine and Covenants 46. Moroni 10. And? First Corinthians 12. So about the time that we spend our time dipping our toe in 1 Corinthians 12 is to go in and compare all the spiritual gifts. And then we move on. And the re- but, but like I'm saying, we list and compare the gifts without seeing why, did, why was Paul detailing at a time that there were disputes going on, why is he going to reach in and start talking about spiritual gifts? It's nice that he did, but it's not really about spiritual gifts, is it? What would you guess it's about? The yes, yes, it's about having those spiritual gifts and using those as a way to differentiate. Yeah. Um, I remember after church once, kind of being pulled aside by a sister, and she asked if if I give her a blessing. I'd love to do it, and I grabbed another brother, and 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 we took her to a classroom and gave her a blessing. And afterwards, she says, "I, I appreciate that because I know that you give good blessings." <laughs> And it's, uh, so, so my blessings are more better or, or so, somehow than, you know, there is that. I don't want any old blessing. I want the best blessing, you know, from the best person. Okay. Uh, yeah. So, so we have that tendency to do that. Uh, so let's, so I want to jump here uh, and I apologize uh, today as we, as we kind of look a lot at. Uh, right out of the scriptures. If you've got your uh, handy-dandy book today, this would be a good day to have it. All right. Ah, okay. So we get to chapter 12. And he's going to say, now let's talk about spiritual, concerning spiritual gifts, I wouldn't have you be unaware. I understood that, that when you were pagans, you were led astray by unspeaking idols, however you were led. So it is kind of cool, by the way, we're going to go into a, the temple of Artemis, for instance, and there's an unspeakable idol there, and not much happened, and we sacrifice our animal, we get our meat, and we go home. It's kind of cool to go to a place where people are speaking in, in spiritual gifts. And it's not just men, but it's women, it's slaves. Everybody seems to be having, the, that's kind of a draw. There's things going on in this little house church that we're not going to see in the temples of Artemis. That's awesome, okay? I don't want you to be led astray by unspeaking idols, however you were led. Um, now, He's going to say there are different, verse 4, there are different spiritual gifts, but the same spirit. Differences in service, but the same Lord. Different types of activities, but it's the same God who does them all. Each is a manifestation of the spirit for the common good. Uh, And then he's going to go through and he's going to list the spiritual gifts. Now, look at where he goes with this. And, And some of this ought to sound... A little bit familiar and a little bit closer to the vest here. Uh, for he says, 14, for the body is not one member but, bed, but many. Now, 
listen to this. 15. Even if the foot says, I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it does not cease to belong to the body just because of this statement. Now, put that in different terms. How would we say that today? I'm going to give a real good example. Sisters who have callings in primary and young women will say, I'm not a part of the Relief Society. Those that maybe are in, in nursery and primary and they're saying, I'm not really part of the Relief Society, that, that's over there. That's that room. They're over there where the big people meet. Therefore, and why did I get part in primary as opposed to not teaching Relief Society? I'm a foot. <laughs> I'm not as important. Okay. Where else might people think they... Because then he says, and the ear says, I'm not, I'm not the eye. I do not belong to the body. Where do we run into this? Sometimes the inactive member comes... I'm going to come in and I'm going to slide into the back row because I'm not one of the people on the front row and I'm certainly not one of the people on the stand. I'm the back rowers. Why? No, they really don't. They, they really don't. Some of the best people sit in the back row. So, yes, they do. <laughs> they do. Yes, in the back row. <laughs> Unmarried women. <sighs> yes. 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 Um, I, I'm, I'm really aware of that having spoke to 200 singles this weekend and spent time with them. Uh, in in uh, shows and 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 conference and and all of that kind of stuff, yeah. Which is and, and because we tend when we roll out a new program, even like the Come Follow Me, how do we frame the Come Follow Me program? As a family, you and your wife and your kids are going to sit down and do, and this is how this will work. And then we're going to show a video of, okay. But anybody seen the, what's on the front cover of Come Follow Me? Made look lately? Yeah. What about the one last year? It was one person, right? A single lady, and she was, looked like she was maybe from Thailand or China or something like that. She's sitting with her legs underneath a small table. She's reading on her own. Out of that, that's kind of cool. That says this is the kind of person that we're reaching out towards. But we tend to do a family church and anybody outside of that. By the way, and I've mentioned this before, statistics-wise, if we take married women in the church, married to an active priesthood holder who attend church together, what percentage does that active woman married to an active priesthood holder, what percentage of the women in the church, in that particular ward is she? Less than 50%. Oh, she's about 25%. About 25 to 30%, less than a third of active women married to active priesthood holders attending church together, it's less than a third. More than two-thirds are not. But then there's those days when you're just individually feeling insecure or uncomfortable being around a lot of people and you just don't feel like you fit in. But you go anyway because 
you, you need that strength and encouragement. What if, what if you're struggling with depression or anxiety? And it just, everybody else is walking out of a testimony meeting going, wow, that was really good, or I enjoyed this, or how was conference? Oh, it was fantastic. It was one, and, and, and you're not feeling anything. You're feeling numb, yeah. My own experiences, I, uh, I joined the church and moved to here. The first few years was really struggling to me because I was the only very few non-white yes. members in the world. And uh, I really like this scripture because it, I stay because I know this is God's church. But uh, visually, it's what we see with our carnal eyes. It's really daily challenge every Sunday. And I remember when I moved here, I have a childhood friend who lived in California. Uh, they didn't know I joined the Mormon church. So the, my friend's mom say, do you go to the church? Because that's what the majority American do. I say, I do. And which church do you go? I say, I went to our church. Then she made a comment that was really interesting. She said, oh, that's white people's church. Uh, I, I want to pitch in this is from ethnic... From, from an ethnic difference, yeah. Yes. Yeah. You, you may feel, you, you may not, you guys may be, I, 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 shouldn't, I shouldn't use you, you are, guys because yeah. there's a new... That, that's right. <laughs> I hope you okay. you're, 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 not, you're not a foot, Judy. <laughs> <laughs> No, I, I think that's true. Experience that um, some people may feel very comfortable in this environment, but for people like me who don't look like white, I come into the church, but the, it will immediately, it doesn't matter what they say on the podium, what I see would just... The, 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 vis, the visual part, if you're ethnically different, I think, I think, I think that's true. This is also one challenge. Oh, I, th I think so. Yeah. Yeah. And these days, sexual orientation, I don't necessarily fit in. And I, and I may not be saying everything, whether, whether I'm out or whether I'm in. <laughs> I don't feel like everything, like everybody else. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so we have the, look at the mixing then. And, and again, we put on, I always talk about we put on our, our sacrament meeting face. And everybody's fine but not feeling like they fit in. Um, I, I mentioned before, I think just recently, when, we, when they run the, the list of why people leave the church, for men leaving the church, either it doesn't fit for them, or they've got problems about the historicity of the Book of Mormon, or Joseph Smith, and <laughs> stuff like that. What's the number one reason why women leave the church? The number one. And nothing else is even close. They feel judged. The latest Pew research and the, and the research that was done by Jana Reese both point to the same thing, that when women leave the church, the number one reason they leave is they feel judged. They, they, they go to Relief Society, but they just don't feel like they fit in, or they don't feel like they have any friends. And part of it is, is I'm not like them. I'm different somehow. Okay, they, they know the answers and I don't. Maybe I just don't have much gospel knowledge. And I'm going to feel judged if I ask a question. Everybody goes, what? She doesn't know that? It's not, it's not just happening in Relief Society. The young women 
Young women's brutal. Yeah, young, but because now you're at that peer group age where they're comparing one another, and if you're not dressed the same or you're, you're not as uh, popular or, or whatever it is, that's hard. Yeah. Okay. What's that? Oh my gosh. Oh my wow. God. All right. Converts don't know these things, right? Oh my God. Uh, how, about, how about for those of you who don't have pioneer heritage, <laughs> unlike the rest of us who do? I'm seven generations. How about you? <laughs> well, then I know more than you do. <laughs> you know, we have these ways of differentiating. Um, are you born Texan or are you a Yankee? <laughs> in other words, again, C.S. Lewis talking over and over and over again says pride isn't about having one thing or another. It's about having more than somebody else. That's what pride is. Yeah. I think some of these things, though, are things that we put on ourselves. Like the, the judgment and and isn't that kind of isn't that kind of what Paul is saying some of you are kind of judging yourself and, and it isn't like people are telling you that you're afoot in this case he says you think you're afoot in other words you're judging yourself and assuming that you don't fit in and assuming that you don't bring anything to the table when you really do yeah, yeah. Uh, I, was, I was listening to a, a, a podcast on the way home. So we were driving home last night. Uh, and a lady is, is doing a deep study of the book of Jacob in the book of Mormon. Uh, and, and, and she points out two things. And as you're getting ready to read Jacob, look for these two items in here. Jacob is, uh, first of all, uh, when, when Jacob in the temple is addressing the Nephites and he says, let's talk about how to live your marriage covenants. Who does he use as an example? The Lamanites. They understand love and caring more than you do. In other words, you can learn from other groups and people that are less like you. And in, their, in, the, in the book of Jacob, who, who bears the very last testimony in the book of Jacob about the divinity of the Savior? Sherem does. The Antichrist. And, and Jacob is wrong. Jacob judged him. He's, he says, I'm not going to tell you anything because you won't believe it. I'm not even going to give you a sign because you won't believe it. And he gets a sign, and what happens? He believes it, and then bears testimony. And a lot of what Jacob is talking about is equality and loving each other equally, but learning from other groups that you wouldn't expect that you would learn things from. Uh, I, I continue, as I, even as I get ready for these lessons, I'm amazed at how much I'm, I'm learning from non-LDS sources and, and non-LDS scholars 
the depth of their understanding about the Savior, and then now they have limits in terms of how much they can actually apply it to, but understanding a number of things is just amazing to me. And, I, and I'm sad that for years I have not drawn on that wealth of knowledge that comes from these incredible people. So, yeah. I suppose many of you saw that uh. broadcast uh, about a week ago with Elder Bednar on, on family history, and we had three of the apostles there. But I found it very interesting when the managing director of the missionary department stood up and he started. He said, "You're probably wondering why I'm even here, and so on." But then later on, Elder Bednar said he recounted that, you know, and mentioned it again. He says, "I hope we never have to make that statement again. All this work is the same." It is the same. Did you see who one of the one of the big keynote speakers were was at Roots, Roots Tech uh, a couple of weeks ago? Who was it? Emmett Smith. Yeah, the the Hall of Fame running back. <laughs> you know. So all right. So we can learn. Okay. So now, the air says I'm not. I do not belong to the body. Uh, now, go down to twenty. There are many members, but one body. The eye. Now, here's the other way around, right? The eye can't say to the hand, I don't need you. Uh, I'm Jewish. I don't need to be hearing from any Roman members here. You know. Um, instead, the members of the body, and then listen close, even though they seem to be weaker, are essential. Then look at where he goes with this. Members of the body that seem less honorable, we place greater honor on them. A few years ago, I was just floored when a guy asked me uh, uh, why uh, I wasn't a high priest. You know, uh, I was an elder, and he says, why aren't you a high priest? He said, well, I'm, not, I'm just not worthy enough, sorry. How long have you been in the church? Well, right. Right? Because only the best... I mean, and we, we would do that, right? Okay? Um, so, uh, those members of the body which seem to be less honorable, we place greater honor on them. Now, I got, I got wondering about that honor. So, I, I went and did my own research, uh, going back to the original Greek. Uh, and what I found was... You want to read that? <laughs> wow, it came out small. Okay. Uh, honor, uh, in terms of the way that it's translated in Greek, is often seen as valuable. And it's, it's, it's oftentimes applied to financial things. Honor, value, kind of thing. Um, in fact, another one is in 1 Corinthians 7 where it says, You were bought with a price. At, uh, that you be not servants of men. And that bought with a price is the same thing, it's the same word as honor. Okay? So think about that. And when we're talking about honor, it's value. You are valuable. We place greater value, honor, on them, and our unpresentable body parts are clothed with greater respect, which our more presentable parts do not need. All right, translate that. What is he saying that the church needs to be able to do? Those parts of the body that are less 
honorable, we place greater value on them. And our unpresentable body parts are clothed with greater respect, which our more presentable parts do not need. Uh, yes, lady on the back row. Well, it seems to me that a handful of years ago that the church sent two apostles out to what was it, the Philippines and Chile. To take two of our apostles and place them in those areas, yeah. Would it be President Hinckley? Every new member needs a friend, responsibility, and being nurtured. Yeah. Yeah, that would be to place an honor on that, okay? What else? I think, I think we're on the right track. How do we place a greater honor? Humbling ourselves, and then and then what? Right. Roll it through. I think one way to lift someone up is to give them responsibilities, so that they begin to feel the. the um, the Lord loves them and that they can accomplish these tasks and that uh, they, they feel improved because of the responsibility. Sure. Yeah. In other words, we value enough to put you in certain callings. Do we get caught in the, in the ward roulette wheel that the same the same three women are going to be the primary presidency, the young women's presidency, and onto the Relief Society presidency? And we kind of move the same three or four or five people through because, and then they will then plan the trek. Or do we say, we're going to gather everybody and we need your help. Well, I haven't been a member that long. Yep, I know. But we need your perspective. We need your, and, and I, would, I would frame that a little bit to be able to say, we, uh, our presentable parts do not need as much validation Sometimes we're having to validate a little bit more, to be a little bit quicker sometimes to recognize the contribution that they made, to let them know that we're thinking about them, that what they, a comment they made in church or in a, in a Sunday school class, and we don't hear from them very often, and they make a comment, or should we be quicker to run over there and say, that was an idea I hadn't thought of, thank you, and, and do it genuinely. In other words, trying to find a way to honestly, authentically build people up and let them know that you appreciate their contribution. And all are worthy of his sacrifice, his atoning sacrifice. Yeah, and that's right, because we're all, all worthy. Yeah. And I was in this years ago. Um, it was in West Texas, and we were a new ward. And I felt like the primary and women needed more experience. I mean, sisters to teach the children, the youth. And I kind of waited back to call my sisters to teach in the society. And the ones that I called were less 
than those that people wouldn't even consider being, you know, involved in it. And then yet, in the overall perspective, these people that I've called this issue, it reactivated their entire family. And, wow. You know, so when we reach out to those that are still there, Yeah, and and we've had we've had in our ward several of those who did who had an, an, a unique ability to see the needs of those that that were really struggling. Um, if if uh, and again I know I'm picking on the sisters a little bit at the moment just as it, it more jumps out. Would you, if you're if you're in a relief society presidency and you've got a new sister with a tattoo, would you have her teach a relief society class? Should right. And, and but is, it, is there any hesitation there when you go? Gee, would that would you call it into young women's? Well, we're not. Or does she have some unique information about what happens when you struggle? Okay, that that's the kind of diversity that we're talking about, and we are. Um, and and, and we're we're going to battle. I think this more and more. We live in a polarized society. When it gets ready for your from your Fourth of July extended party with your family, you gonna talk about politics, or you can try and maybe stay away from that one. Okay, you just, well, there are some areas where we're just like, wow, um, we're gonna have a diversity of ideas and and all that. Okay, but he says he says we're gonna show greater honor to the lesser members. So that there may be no division of the body, but the members may care for one another in the same ways. If one member suffers, then every member suffers together. And if one is glorified, other members rejoice together. Wow. So there is that, <coughs> I think that sense of, of saying, what happens if somebody is having... Uh, I remember... Uh, us, us living in a ward once, uh, and we had a couple of members of our ward that became very wealthy, a business that really took off on them, really took off on them. And they did extremely well financially. And, and, and there were grumblings in parts of the ward that just says, well, you know, we can't move. yeah, they made a lot of money, but they are, you know, in some ways I've got to level this thing out we're not making a lot of money. They are suddenly making a lot of money. And, and uh, the one guy had bought uh, a brand new car. I think it was a vet. I think he had a brand new vet. And after driving it to church a couple of times, he went, nah, I'm going to take my beater car to church. Because <laughs> uh, the youth thought it was really cool, but he was getting a lot of flack from some of the parents. 
Okay? Because somebody's doing well and we're all going to somehow, sometimes if we're not careful. You ever been to, to, to Galveston or Corpus Christi and see the crab buckets? If people are crabbing out there, you just take some string, tie some bacon through it, throw it off the edge of the dock, pull it up, you've got two or three crabs, you throw it in a bucket. Okay? Do you have to put a lid on the bucket? Oh. How come? Why do you not have to put a lid on the bucket? Because the crabs will pull themselves back in. One goes trying to climb out of the bucket, and the other one will pull him down. And another one's crawling up here, and they pull him down. And uh, you know, they don't even have to lid these things because the crabs will keep themselves in this. You know, sometimes some of the people that uh, are struggling are the ones that seem to be doing well. It's just differences, and we have to. And so we get into these petty jealousies, I think, in a group. Okay, so. Uh, you, are a you are the body of Christ, and each member has a part. And God has placed in there all these first apostles, second apostles, third teachers. You go through, are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers? Okay? Do all wear, work miracles? I had a, had a sister in my, in my office just this last week, and she was talking about, she, she was struggling a little bit with kind of how she fit in, and I said, okay, picture this for a minute. She said, what? I said, it's the Ward Christmas party, and you've been asked to help. Are you the stick-in-the-kitchen person and never come out? Are you the fill-up-the-water-glass person who's flitting around the desks, or the tables? Or are you the stand-at-the-mic person and MC? Oh, I'm back in the kitchen. <laughs> I'm not leaving the kitchen. I'm just going to cut up potatoes and organize things, and I'm going to hang out. And I said, she says, because I'm not comfortable doing the walk around the table part. I certainly am not going to be comfortable doing the, the microphone part. And I said, but after the party is over, are you one of the last two or, two or three people to leave the building? Yes. I said, that, in other words, your service and the things that you're doing is going to go unnoticed, but you won't leave the building until the kitchen is cleaned up and wiped up. That's who you are. What if everybody flitted around the tables and had a good time and then we all went home and left the kitchen dirty? Look how much we need you. And that's a vital role that you play. Now, I also think you're capable of flitting around the tables and filling water glasses. But you've placed yourself in the kitchen, but even there, you provide a vital service. It's a struggle about how, how we take this, even in a modern church, isn't it? Yeah. of Madonna. So Madonna, when they go to other country, they will have adapt the local taste, develop like a different hamburger in different country. Mm -hmm. you know, like maybe in Italy they have one flavor, in Asia has one flavor, but they still, when we see them, we still can recognize it's Madonna based on the packaging. It's still, it's still, yeah, every time you get McDonald's has the same it's going to be the Golden Arches, but, they, but it has a different flavor based on where it is. They may have only the bun, the same as here, but the, all the ingredients inside are all different. So I, I, I couldn't wondering when Paul, he, he, he comes on here, 
Does this apply to Paul's teaching like us? He's talking about the body of the Christ. Are there basic ingredients that can, when we adapt to different parts of the body, in, 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 in Christ's doctrine, are there anything that is very basic, essential, still need to be kept? to be qualified, to be called uh, or it's like a Madonna, you can just keep the two buns and then everything inside can mess up, still can be Madonna. You know what I mean? Do you know my question? Let's talk about the gospel and McDonald's. <laughs> That, that, that's actually a, I love that. I don't know if you heard what she was saying. McDonald's will tend, there's a lot about McDonald's that's the same, but when they go into other uh, areas, they may, they, they may have hamburgers, but what's inside the bun may be different based on local flavors and preferences and things like that. But basically it's McDonald's. And she's wondering what, what parts of McDonald's are essential that still make it McDonald's. What part of the church is essential that no matter where you go, even with the local flavor, that it is all the same? Thank you for that, because that's the next chapter. <laughs> okay. Uh, do all have the gifts of healings? Do all speak languages? Do all interpret? Seek for the greater gifts. Now, you can see the Corinthians reading this and going, yes, I want the greater gift, which is the really good gift. Okay. Yet I will show you the more excellent way. Yes. Let's do the more excellent way, especially more excellent than my neighbor. <laughs> I want to be, be the better Latter-day Saint. Show me the more excellent way. The really good ones do what? Okay. And, and, and again, and, and when, when the Bible was put together, we, we separate chapters up for convenience of reading. Okay, in Paul's, as Paul's writing this out, the first verse of chapter 13 is the very next line after uh, verse 31 of chapter 12. It's all one, it's all one paragraph almost. So, okay, yet, seek for the greater gifts. Yes, I will show you a more excellent way. And the more excellent way is what? Yeah. If... I speak the languages of men and angels. Man, I'm doing really good. Uh, but I do not have charity. Here's, what's, here's the magic sauce. Okay? I do not have charity. I'm like a brass horn or a clanging cymbal. I'm making lots of noise. And no music. <laughs> yes. Uh, I'm like a brass horn... Uh, or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic insight and I understand all mysteries and knowledge and I, and I have all faith so I can move mountains, man, I'm good. Uh, but I do not have charity, I'm nothing. If I give away all that I have and hand over my body to be burned, but I do not have charity, I gain nothing. And then we get into charity is patient, charity is kind, is jealous, nor does it boast, it's arrogant or rude. Um, Elder Holland years ago talking about uh, 1 Corinthians 13 made this very personal. He personalized it. And he said, oft times charity fails. But the Lord's charity never fails. It's the Lord's charity that's patient. It's the Lord's 
charity that's kind. It's the Lord's parity that's not jealous, nor boasting, nor arrogant, nor rude, nor self-serving. And as we're trying to become like him, we're trying to become charitable like he is charitable. Okay, now. It's the last part here that has always intrigued me. Charity never ends. And it starts with verse 9. For, he says, Corinthians, we know in part and we prophesy in part. Some things we know, some things we don't know. We know in part, we prophesy in part. We think we know. When the fulfillment, when all this comes, the partial will pass away. Then he says, when I was a child, and I believe that for Paul, when he'd say, when I was a child, I would think he would say, when I was a fully active Pharisee in the early days of my life, studying under Gamamiel, when I was a child, theologically, understanding-wise, when I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child, as do the Israelites. But when I became an adult, I put away childish things. For we see dimly in a mirror, but then face to face. What does it say in the King James? For we, for, it's more poetic, but, it, but in its poeticy, is that a word? In its poeticness, it oftentimes blocked the real power behind this verse. Because in King James it says, for we now do what? Glass. Glass. Glass through a, through a, no it doesn't say mirror, we, through a glass. Darkly. And I, and I, again, I, I've, I've told the story in here how I submitted that as a class to BYU. Uh, and, and I said, I, I want to talk about looking through a glass darkly. And they sent back to me and they said, that's kind of a dark topic for Education Week. <laughs> How about looking through a window optimistically? <laughs> and I said, I'm quoting Paul. <laughs> and he went, oh, okay, you can leave the title. <laughs> but I think in the translation, we see it better. For we see dimly in a mirror, but then face to face. Okay, what's he saying? If you're looking dimly in a mirror, what do you see? Yourself. Yourself. Dimly. So, put that in different words. What's he saying? If you're looking in a mirror dimly. I see all my weaknesses right there in front of me. And I can't see the bigger sometimes. How often of you, if you're going to like, Oh, we're in Branson. Let's do a selfie. <laughs> and then you go, oh crap. I had no idea I looked like that. <laughs> Dang it. How many of you, if you're going to send a selfie to somebody, you take 15 pictures before you choose? At least. At least. <laughs> Because, or uh, I'm always a little bit startled when I'm, I'm looking for something, I punch it up and I happen to get like the camera and it's got me looking back at me and I go, ah! <laughs> Especially, I'll tell you when it's the absolute worst. Uh, and I know this doesn't happen for you guys, but it does for me. 
I roll out of bed and I'm half awake. Uh, let's see if anything's happened during the night. Ah! And, and there's me looking back. And, like, <laughs> and I see the me that just rolled out of bed and it's really creepy. <laughs> If, if we're, if we're going to look through a selfie darkly, are we going to like what we see? No. no. Oh, heck no. No. Because, and he's saying, so isn't it interesting? He's talking about we're all one body of saints. We're all here together. We need to have charity. We need to love. And right in the middle of all this thing of love is kind, it's caring. Is a, Then he goes... And you're looking in a mirror. What's he saying? Be kind to yourself. Be kind to yourself, right? Because of all the people you are judging, who are you judging the worst? Yourself. You are more crit for all the criticalness you have for everybody else. One of the reasons why we critical criticalize somebody else is because we are being critical to ourselves more than anybody else. We just don't tell everybody else. I think you're dumb, but I'm dumber. <laughs> you know, well, that was, you did a horrible job in your sacrament meeting talk, but mine would be worse. I just don't say it out loud. Or I hope mine isn't worse. Okay? I just say, it, this is not an accident. That Here's Paul talking about the fact that we need, yes, there are people. Yes, we're trying to bring them together. Yes, they should all be one body. The eye can't say anything to the foot, and the foot can't say anything to the eye. And then, we, yes, let's be charitable. Yes, let's take care of one another and be nice and not fail. And he's doing all this stuff. And then right at the end he goes, and you're looking in a mirror. Wow. Now, I think there's probably a second thing to this, which, is be, which we could say it this way. This is the other part of what he's also saying. Take a look in the mirror, because it's not just other people doing what we're talking about. <laughs> you may also be the one that is judging and being critical. How you doing? <laughs> Look in the mirror. I think is where he's going. For we see dimly in a mirror, but then face to face. What does he mean face to face? Things become clear. The reality is... Yes, it does. And look at what the reality is. We looked... But then face to face, I know in part, but then in this future day, I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. In a future day, I will see me, what? As God sees me. And I haven't heard in my scriptures that part of that dimness is because we have a veil. Oh, do I like that. Say that again a little louder. Out of the dimness that is that we can't see us as Heavenly Father sees us because of the veil that was put in front of us. I've never thought of it that way. I think that's magnificent. That there is a, that some of the dimness comes from our mortalness. And we see what we see, but there, if we're going to, that veil does block who we really are 
preexistently. Man, I think that's great. Yeah. The face to face you're talking about seeing Christ. Whenever, thank you. Remember, uh, he is Jewish. Whenever we read in the Bible about face to face, it always means what? It's a very specific phrase. Moses saw God face to face. The breath of God. The breath of, and it's close enough that you can feel the breath on your cheek is part of what that breath to breath means, or the face to face. So that's exactly what it means. Right now, I, I don't know much. I prophesy partly the stuff I think I know. I'm looking dimly at myself because I'm veiled, because it's dark, because I'm human, because I'm, I'm covered up by these ideas of inadequacy. I don't fit. But one day I will see me as God sees me when I'm face to face. I will see what he sees. I will see what he sees. Even as I have been fully known all along. Now, faith, hope, and charity, these three abide. But the greatest of these is charity. Comma, I put a comma there. The greatest of these is charity, comma, for who? Me. If I am greater at charity for myself, how much easier is it for me to be charitable to those around me? The more I am charitable in that I see that God has seen me and loves me and cares about me, how much easier is it to, that ex to then extend that to somebody else? We loved him. Why? Because he first loved us. Love one another as I have loved you. You feel my love? Love one another. And love your neighbor as yourself. Because he has loved you. I mean, again, Judy, that's the secret, that's the secret sauce. That is the thing that endures across everywhere. Love is that place, is the charitable thing. But it's the love of God for us and the love of his love we share with others. Close through. Okay? Isn't that great? That is his key to solving, um, solving um, divisions in the church. There it sits. You look like you're thinking there, President. You know, a little bit different direction on that is as I've talked to inactive
just those kind of things to open that door and make them feel welcome and a part of things, I think would address a lot that's coming at it from a little different. Well, no, I, I, I think that's, it, it depends on kind of where we're coming from. Uh, I, I, I know my, my experience this weekend is, is one of those things that uh, I get to have from time to time and had one in Nauvoo in October. And, and that is, it's, a, it's a weird kind of thing to say, okay, I've been invited to come and speak and you're going to be our keynote speaker and there's a poster of you there uh, and we're just anxious that you're going to be here and here, have some tickets for this or that. Okay. But I always know that when I walk into a place and people's face lights up, when I show up, it's so easy. If I feel like I'm being loved and accepted and they're glad to see me, what I found myself doing even more than that is if I'm in a place of friends, I, it was easy for me to go start talking to strangers, people that I wouldn't have met. I didn't know who they were. There are people coming from all over the country. And, but suddenly they were friends. And I would greet it and went down to breakfast. There's some strangers, people I don't know. I'm automatically saying hi because I'm among friends. They're strangers, but I'm among friends. And it's just this easiest thing. That if I'm feeling loved and validated, to turn around and love and validate other people. It just, and, and I, I just watch that experience. And I think we tend to, now, if we're, if we're feeling shunned and ignored and left out, and you're going to walk into a group of strangers, what are you going to do? Hide, shut down. I'm going to assume nobody really wants me here. I'm going to assume they didn't look at me very long or they looked away or, or, or they came up and said hi, but they didn't really mean it. <laughs> They're just being nice. You know, they did that plastic Mormon thing. They're just looking at me and then, uh, you know, but they really didn't want They were just hoping I'd go away. Jerry and I were invited by our neighbor to a Muslim wedding for his neighbor's daughter. Never been in those facilities before. We walked in, we were obviously out of place. <laughs> yeah. But uh, they were so welcoming. Yeah. Nice and caring the whole time we were there. I just felt like no matter what I do, I'm okay here. Yeah. And just, even though I they're just happy to have you there Cindy and I a, a few years ago went to a uh, uh, a wedding of, of one of her relatives and they're all uh, uh, I think a community of Christ um, and we and we went to the wedding, and we're going around, and we're meeting the family, and there's everybody sitting there, and like the little grandma, okay, and and we're like, oh, this is Kevin and Cindy. Hi, how are you? They're loving, yeah, how are you doing it? And, and they get to the grandma, and they go, grandma, yes, this is Kevin and Cindy Hinkley. They're Mormon, and she goes, oh no. <laughs> <laughs> Oh no! <laughs> and I thought, oh, <laughs> Did it happen at your wedding? Yes. Oh! My, my dead husband called his grandmother to tell him that she had gotten married. And the first things out of her mouth were, 
Eddie, is she Catholic? And he says, no, Grandma, she's Mormon, and slammed down that phone. <gasps> and she never talked to us again. Wow. Never. Yeah, yeah. It just, it, it, it kind of happens, doesn't it? Yeah. Members of the Church of Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, these are members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter day Saints, and they go, Cool. And when you say, Yes, we're Mormon. <laughs> uh, okay. By the way, you know Mormons run Branson? You realize that, right? You know, if you, the, 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 the best shows are run by these large Mormon families that have got. Ten kids and anyway, all right. That's it. So there's one other th one other area, in the, and I think we just got time to do this. Um, now, in First Corinthians, then Paul is trying to somehow heal all of these divisions, and part of where he's going with all this is this discussion about being filled with the love of God and being filled with charity, especially feeling it for ourselves and then being able to extend it outward. Okay? The final stretch uh, of all of 1 Corinthians is actually chapter 15. It is, it is the capstone. It is the um, Jewish writing um, has this, has the, the, the poetry pattern always has the final linchpin piece and everything points towards that conclusion. It's the, it's the bottom line. It's where we're trying to go here. Uh, and it's interesting that for Paul, uh, as he's writing all of this stuff about 1 Corinthians, everything in 1 Corinthians is pointed like a dagger straight at 1 Corinthians 15. That's where he's going. Um, and th this is his ultimate way of trying to have people understand things. But understand that 1 Corinthians 15 is what this is about. Uh, now, I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel which we proclaim to you, which you received and which you stand by means of which you're going to be saved. If you hold firmly to the message, uh, I proclaim to you unless you believed in vain. Um, for at first I gave you what I received. Christ died according to our sins and was buried and rose again on the third day. Then he appears to, to Cephas and then 500 and then the majority are still alive. They're still out there. Some have passed away. Then he appears to Jacob, his, his brother. Uh, we talked about that tender moment probably between he and his non-believing brother when his resurrected brother shows up to say it's all true. It's all real. Um, which I get, I think is just amazing. Um, like my boasting of you I have in Christ. And we're going to talk more about the Next week we're going to be moving, we're going to take things a little bit out of order. Uh, we're going to talk about 1 Corinthians, and then we're, going to, then we're going to hop over to Ephesus, and his experience in Ephesus, because then 2 Corinthians is going to come after his experience in Ephesus, and we're going to go from optimistic Paul to crushed and almost suicidal Paul based on what's happening in Corinth and his experience in Ephesus. That is a, an incredibly crushing moment for him. Um, and you get a hint of it here. Like my boasting of you which I had in Christ Jesus, if I fought wild animals in Ephesus only as a man. 
It wasn't like he was put in the theater in Ephesus to fight wild animals. The wild animals were the people that were fighting against him in Ephesus. If the, if the dead are not raised, let us, let us eat, drink, and, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Uh, do not be deceived. But then he's going to go 35. But some say, how are the dead raised? In what body will they come? Full, if you must sow, what you sow must die in order for you to live. In other words, they were already battling the idea of a resurrection. Now, stop for a second. Why would... Why would these saints in Corinth start pushing back against resurrection? It's, it's what? Yeah, some would have been. And that's why they're sad, you see, right? If you're, a Ro- if you're coming from the Roman tradition... What's the imperial cult? The Roman tradition is who is who is either a who is a god? Caesar. Caesar is the imperial and who is the son of God? Augustus Caesar. Okay? Now, so Caesar is great. He brought peace, he brought prosperity, he he by the sword, but he did bring peace. We are at peace relatively during this period of time. Uh, we have created cities and seaports and Roman roads and shipping lanes and, and letters and mail going back and forth in great cities that still remain, still stand. It, the Caesar was great. He was wonderful. And we venerate him. And on holidays, we sacrifice meat to him. Caesar was fantastic. He was king, he was Lord, he is God. And he is still dead. <laughs> he, he, for everything that Caesar was, he was stabbed and killed in the forum by the senators and Brutus, and he's still dead. You can go to his tomb. And you guys are, and, and what we're bringing into this church in Corinth is a is a criminal who was hung on a tree and lives. Wow. Jesus is greater than Caesar. When we talked last week about weakness and, and the weak are going to become strong, Jesus is the greatest example of weakness. Because he was seen as a criminal, he died as a criminal, he rises as king and lord. The gospel comes forth in weakness. That's why we send 18 and 19 year old goobers out to preach the gospel and they baptize people. <laughs> With very little knowledge, just lots of testimony and spirit and sweetness but weakness okay so they're struggling with this idea of because resurrection is like this is the final trump card I win (laughs) you know we worship a God who came back and said he would okay so 
That's a struggle. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one, the glory of the sun, the moon, the stars. He's going to start getting into all of that. I don't want to spend a lot of time on that, but I want you to see um, this is the one we always get caught up on. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna challenge, I'm gonna challenge you a little bit to see this just a little bit differently than what we normally do. We want to see these verses through presentism. We want to see it through these eyes at the moment. The way that we understand the gospel and our, and the amount of revelation and knowledge that we have at the moment that wasn't necessarily there at the time. Verse 28, when all things are subjected to Christ, then the Son himself will be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him so that God is in all, is all in all. Otherwise, why are they baptized on, on behalf of the dead if the dead rise not at all? Why are they then baptized for the dead? Why are we in danger every hour? I am dying every day. Now, we look at this and how, would, how, do, how do we interpret this as Latter-day Saints? Verse 29. Why are they then being baptized for the dead? If the dead arise not at all. How would we interpret that? You guys are already looking at me like, he's going somewhere with this. <laughs> I am. But how would we do it today? How did we do it as missionaries? Were they doing baptisms for the dead back then? Yes. yes. Is what we teach. And they may have. The, the really answer on this, and this is why this is fascinating. There was a... Um, the, as, as I've gone out and, and surveyed... What all, the, what all the writers are out there saying, and Christian writers and traditional writers and even the early church fathers, here's, ba here's basically their bottom line to verse 29. Uh, we have no idea what's going on here. <laughs> there is no historical evidence of, of the early saints doing any kind of proxy temple work. None. All we have is this verse. And it could be exactly that. It could be that, that the Savior during the 40-day ministry taught them how to do it, and they were doing it. It's possible. We just have no evidence of it. No writings, no suggestions, nothing other than this. And so, uh, in fact, I read one, one guy who says, uh, and I thought this was beautiful. He says, uh, it would appear that the Corinthians were doing some kind of baptism by proxy for those that have dead, that are, are dead. But because this offends our theology, <laughs> that's, that's word for word, because this offends our theology, uh, there has to be another explanation which we don't have. <laughs> Basically his conclusion, we have no idea. And they don't. And we don't. Let me tell you as close as I came what I th what one possibility on here. Is, again, 
they could have been doing baptisms for the dead. We don't have any records of temples, dedicated places that would have been set apart. In Nauvoo, they were doing it in rivers, so they could have done it anywhere. Good possibility. But I, I want to I show you something from the 4th century that I think is certainly a candidate. The writer known as Ambrose Laster, writing in the latter half of the 4th century, substantiates Tertullian's initial confirmation of Corinthian proxy baptisms. Tertullian is our, is our uh, writer about the 3rd century, uh, who was trying to explain what he thought might have been happening in Corinth, and what he then supposes and and here's, here's what he came up with. In his famous commentaries on the Epistle Paul, he notes that some people were at that time in the First Corinthians construction being baptized for the dead because they were afraid, listen close, they were afraid that someone who was not baptized would either not rise at all or, or else rise merely in order to be condemned. He clearly affirms the practice and argues that Paul refers to such work in his epistle. Though scholars have had difficulties ascertaining the identity of this guy, his remarks provide further evidence and some Christians in the early centuries continued to read 1529 as a reference to vicarious ordinate work. But, but it's important, hold on. But, what we, but this suggests that at least one possibility, at least what the belief was in the early Christian church, was the fact that they were being baptized by proxy to make sure they were resurrected. In other words, baptism made, the, made sure they were resurrected. If they weren't baptized, they weren't going to be resurrected. We do baptisms for the dead so they'll be saved as part of the regular ordinance. It appeared, one possibility for what the Corinthians were doing with the knowledge they had was that if we don't do the proxy baptism, they won't be resurrected. They're going to do it so that they'll be saved. Or at the very least, uh, they're afraid everybody will be saved, but they'll be risen, condemned, and then sent to hell. So, so I, it just occurred to me that this is probably where the ordinance within the Catholic Church would be extreme unction. It is the extreme unction. Yeah. Yes, it is. Right. In other words, we're going to perform we're going to perform last rites mm -hmm. because last rites then is that step towards because when we die we don't immediately go to heaven, right? In the Catholic Church you go from there to purgatory and it's while you're there that people can light candles and perform things in this life that slowly move you towards salvation um, and, and but you know what if you don't get last rites you're really kind of you're not going to make it so at least one of the possibilities are for them is saying only those that are baptized get to be resurrected and we have people that have died we got to be baptized for them so they will be resurrected 
is, is and because right after this will come um, first of all comments on that in other words there's an area here we don't know and I, I know it's, it, it slaps up a little bit against the fact that we always say this is proof they were doing baptisms for the dead and that may be true but there's a good chance that there's another explanation yeah You want to describe limbo? L -l -l limbo is kind of that in-between place. For people who aren't baptized? Uh-huh. And, and, and even and purgatory is for those that are we're, we're kind of way there to have enough good stuff done on our side to slowly push us. That's why you go into Catholic Church to light candles for your dead. Because that is... And, if you, and, and the amount of... Um, uh, confessions that you do and the and the obligatory times that you go to church you're, you're where you're supposed to be on Easter and and on uh, Palm Sunday it's like there's a, they get one more point there's one there's one more way of saying you're moving your dead towards salvation and you get it and and again it was the and it, and then they said but you know what if you pay a lot of money that's like a major step forward for them, and that's what drove Luther out of the church. Was the idea that it wasn't just the fact that they could pay extra money and then go crazy on, on Mardi Gras. It was the fact that by pay, the rich were being able to pay extra amounts to move their dead through purgatory and get them to salvation faster. And, and Luther just went berserk on that because he felt like that was being... And that's when he's like, let's write all that up and put that on the Brandenburg door. Yeah. Well, it proves that all these different religions and whatever they're doing they believe in an afterlife. And they believe that there are things that we can do here. Yeah. So even though we may not always understand or agree or think the doctrine is incorrect or yeah. the right one, these people still care about these people, and I think that's the spirit of Elijah. When we were in Poland, we were there a couple of days before All Saints Day, November 1st. We were there during Halloween after that. And we were in a lot of small villages, a lot of Polish cemeteries, and we were so impressed with the work they do on these graves. They would go out and rake and work and yeah. candles and flowers, and they, it really mattered to them if they honored their dead this way. And so to me, it's, yes, everybody has a different way of doing it, and I you know the Lord has a right way to do this, but it's still the spirit and this feeling is yeah. there. Well, it is, and, and that's why uh, writers in, in our church, uh, such as Terrell Givens, have suggested that, uh, I mean, we have, we, we've had a tendency to say uh, the, the, uh, the restoration works something like this. There was the original church, and it fell. Then it, it, it morphed into the Catholic church, but it, it had some of the trappings, but there was still a lot of stuff. And then the Reformation, Luther, Calvin, was a, was a step forward. And then we get to the Restoration. Okay, And we've tried to, and in some ways, our tradition has said uh, the Restoration was one step forward, uh, in, in the process of the restoration. And when we start talking about things like this, there are, there are some really solid LDS authors that believe 
that in some ways the reformers were a step backwards. That the Catholic Church, because it's love for the dead and work for the dead and providing a way for those on the living to do that, and that there has to be grace, and grace has to be done in ordinances and sacraments and everything, that in some ways the Reformation was a step backwards. And that, uh, and that we're, that's why in, in heart and soul, in so many ways, we are closer to Catholicism than we are traditional things. Where it'd be easier for us to say, well, we're closer to Baptists and stuff like that. In a lot of ways, we're closer to Catholics. So, anyway. Uh, all right. Did I confuse you so far? Okay. Let, let me throw one more thing for you to think about. Uh, and then we will... Did I not put it in here? Uh, I left it out. Okay. I didn't. Okay. Here's my question. This is this is one for you to, to kind of ponder on, and I'm going to, again, I, I, I think given our level of, of understanding things, we can, we can push this just a little bit, so I want you to be thinking about this. Because this is one of those dominant topics that is out there in the LDS scholarship sphere. 1 Corinthians 13. Charity never fails. How'd that end up in the Book of Mormon? How, how do we go to the Book of Moroni and we find quoted almost exactly... 1 Corinthians 13. How did it end up in the Book of Mormon? How did eat, drink, and be merry, which we just quoted, how did that end up in 1 Nephi? What are, what are the... Uh, just a couple minutes. What are the possibilities of how... 1 Corinthians 13 ends up in, in the book of Moroni. Because sometimes when people are... And the reason I bring this up is that you're going to have youth. You're going to have non-members of the church. You're going to have people attacking the church. And this is one of those things they go after. Because for them it's a very straight line thing. Joseph plagiarized the Bible and dropped it in. Same as with Isaiah. But, but now we're going to... So this is... So Joseph was a plagiarizer and he just dropped it in. Okay? So how did 1 Corinthians 13 end up in... Yeah? Well, uh, we believe that the Lord reveals his secrets to the prophets. Sure. Why did Nephi and Jacob refer to Jesus Christ? They would have referred to him as Messiah. Yeah. And so that could have been just the word that Joseph to use when he was dictated. Or... While his, while his head is in a hat, right? Right. Or wherever else. You know, that and other things. But, um, the Lord revealed the secrets to his office and he can reveal things that the prophets at all times. And there's some more records from the ten tribes that we don't have yet. And so what did the Lord reveal to them? And so it looks kind of funny because it's before so would you be saying then that as Joseph is dictating what's coming through his head is 1 Corinthians 13 and going right onto the page for Moroni for Mormon speaking to Moroni in his letter that's certainly a real possibility 
Is there any other possibilities? By the way, I, I'm throwing out the, and there is no answer here. Because we don't know. Is there any other possibilities? Would it be possible that it could have been on the brass plates? Was it possible it was on the brass plates? Uh, no, because the brass plates were brought in 500 BC and Paul is writing in 55 AD. But it didn't have everything, right? Could Paul have been looking at something in the records that we don't have? Yeah. That's a possibility. Well, I don't see why uh, they both can't be the same thing. Right. From different right. Okay. Truth is truth. Yeah, uh, truths true are truth. But the problem is, is when you get a word by word, verse by verse, you get long passages which are exactly the same. And in this case, in the King James, not in the original Greek. Is it possible that as part of this translation process, Joseph felt inspired to put, to put this chunk of stuff and put that in Mormon's mouth? Possibility. We'll we don't know. We'll, we'll see it in the movie in the millennium. That's right. Okay. So, so the, here, here's here's what we know, uh, and I and I guess this is what I'll, I'll finish with. When we get into these kind of things, you're going to see a lot of the bits and pieces of writings of Paul sprinkled into the Book of Mormon, put in the mouth of people like Nephi and Mormon. You will. And we don't know how they got there. We don't know what the process was. Remember, when Joseph is asked, how did you translate the Book of Mormon? And he says, by the gift and power of God, and I'm not saying anything more. We don't know how that happened. And if anybody's asking, I think it's easy for us to be able to say, prophets have always quoted one another. It's just that it's very rarely when you have a prophet quoting another prophet who's quoting another prophet, <laughs> you know, and it's Joseph putting those, these words in Mormon's mouth. I don't know. If that's so, wouldn't it have been? Who, who, who did he say, help him do this? Well, could it have come from? Absolutely. And, and at the end of the day, that's probably going to be the closest answer that, that we've got. Uh, that this is exact. the Lord revealed it exactly like with Paul and dictated it. When the Savior comes in 3 Nephi, he quotes exactly what he said in the New Testament. The Sermon on the Mount is basically the same. Because you get to 3 Nephi, you're going to ask the same question. How did, how did Matthew end up in 3 Nephi? And, and maybe, maybe even back there for them, it was done that way. Could be, absolutely. So, Here's the, here's the answer. The question, I mean, if, when people wonder, did Joseph Smith plagiarize stuff and goes into the Book of Mormon? Joseph was an aggregator. He pulled truth from wherever he found it. The uh, Articles of Faith, 13th Article of Faith is coming right out of 1 Peter. It is. He found truth and included it. But when you're actually going to put it in a group of Scripture, you're going to go... There's, there's a process at work here where, where prophetic minds line up. Do they actually grab from one another? Yeah, they do. How exactly did it happen in the Book of Mormon? We don't know. But don't get caught up in that to say, well, then that's proof that Joseph Smith was a plagiarizer and he just made up the Book of Mormon because that's a long way from true. This is, the Book of Mormon is an inspired book. 
Wouldn't you say when he was looking into the hat, he was reading it in English, essentially, and that's what he saw? Could have been. See, and, and my guess is that's probably exactly what happened. I think when he's looking on the seer stone, what's coming across is exactly that. Because even Oliver Cowdery, even at times of disaffection, could have said, yeah, there were times that Joseph pulled his head out of the hat and opened up his Bible, and we just dropped that in there. He never says that. Martin Harris doesn't say that. Emma Smith doesn't say that. We have no, even, even uh, Emma's brother, who helped briefly, doesn't nobody ever said in that entire process Joseph did anything other than had his head in a hat reading the seer stone. And that to me is the most compelling argument to say it was what was appearing to him was probably the King James thing right in front of him and he was just and he was just quoting that out. I, I think that's a, that's my own opinion. I think that's what happened. Anyway. All right. Final questions. Did I leave you thinking and wondering and I know. I know. It's that way, isn't it? Just so much. Here's what I know. I love Paul. I love that this man with his energy and power and strength and energy grew and developed and tried, and tried hard to plant churches wherever he went. What we're going to do is we're going to go from here and we're going to see that they didn't take his advice in Corinth, that they continued to divide, that they started to have cults of personality around Apollos and Cephas and Paul, and they were just doing those things. And then when we get to Ephesus, then they're going to turn and attack Paul from Corinth. And then we're going to get from Ephesus, 2 Corinthians will be the, the liberty letter of Joseph Smith writing to the saints and he's hurting and he's lost and he's very depressed. So we get to see the humanness of Paul. Quite a drama. Anyway, I bury my testimony. Book of Mormon's true and, and the Bible was inspired and, and, the, and there's so much of what's going on in Corinth that just matches our day-to-day -day experience here if we will read it. Uh, so for, for next week, we start taking a look at, read the, uh, like uh, Acts 19, I think it is, as he moves on to um, Ephesus, and start reading uh, maybe the first part of Ephesians, uh, which is going to be fascinating. And I leave that with you in Jesus' name. Amen. amen. Dear Heavenly Father,